Welcome to the second episode of CareCast, CareNet's podcast on family, faith, and life, with me, Vincent DiCaro, CareNet's Chief Outreach Officer, and Rollin Warren, CareNet's President and CEO. In this episode, we are going to talk about a scary transition that has happened in the pro-choice movement and how pro-life people can respond. We are going to talk about power, vulnerability, and compassion, and how they inform the way pro-life people view the world, and we will cover what a classic Seinfeld episode can teach us about the difference between healthy relationships and healthy marriages. So, Rollin, we are back for episode two of CareCast. How are you this morning? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? Good, good. It's springtime, lots of rain. Yeah. Trying to stay awake through all that. Yeah, allergies. Allergies and yeah. rain and stiff joints, but, yeah. you know. We sound like two old men here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, 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 you're, and you're a spry, what, 20, uh, 22? Yeah, I wish I was. I wish I was. Those, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. those days are behind me. But um, it's uh, age is just a number, as they say. So, yeah, we have a lot to talk about today, actually. We do. Um, there's just so much happening in our culture and in the news. Um, yep. But, you know, the one... The first thing that I really wanted to kind of jump into with you, uh, and we're noticing this mm-hmm. in a lot of different places. This is something that we're seeing pop up whenever really this abortion, this life issue uh, comes up. We're seeing, I think, a transition happening. Yes. And the argument that pro-choice people are making to justify abortion. Yeah. And it's actually a rather scary transition. And it basically is this, and I'm going to let you kind of really explain this, mm-hmm. um, that we're really transitioning from pro-choice uh, people are, you know, arguing uh, about the dehumanization. Yeah. That they're, they're no longer really trying to dehumanize the fetus. Right. They're actually really subhumanizing yeah, yeah. the fetus. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting because often in the pro-choice conversation with pro-life folks, I mean, we'll, pro-life folks will say, you know, what you're doing is you're dehumanizing uh, the baby in, in the womb. And sometimes try to make, make a parallel between how folks think about that issue and maybe how they think about slavery. For example, and you know, I started to think about that, and I said, actually, you know, the parallel is not really dehumanization; it's subhumanization. So, you know, as a as a black person, you know, from, from this is something that's obviously near and dear to my heart. Thinking about that, it wasn't that the slaveholders thought that black people weren't human; mm-hmm. they weren't dehumanizing them. Mm-hmm. They were saying, "You're human, but you're subhuman." In other words, you're you're subjugated; you're lower lower form of, of human. And and uh, you know, I, from my perspective, I'm seeing a lot of that same type of conversation now. And I think when we're talking about this I- issue, rather than kind of focusing on dehumanization, which I don't think is totally accurate, really the subhumanization perspective is the right perspective. And I think that that makes that makes a a, a link uh, between the pro-choice position and some of these other things that we talk about from time to time much better than saying dehumanization. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think from, a, you know, just from a philosophical yeah. perspective, I think it's, you know, in a, in a weird way, kind of important for yeah. pro-choice people to actually subhumanize and not dehumanize because something that's not human, you yes. can't really hold it accountable yeah. for its behavior. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't get angry at a lion for yeah, killing yeah. A, a gazelle. Yeah. Um, so in a way, you know, the slaveholders, the Nazis, you know, yeah. all, all these doers of evil actually were very careful to make sure that what they were saying was that these are humans. Yes. They're just subhuman. So therefore, they can be held accountable and they're, quote, guilty of all these things that we're saying that they are guilty of. Yeah. And therefore, that's why they need to be punished or subjugated. So the point here is that we're actually letting pro-choice people off the hook when we accuse them of dehumanizing fetuses. Yes. Because you can't really be as upset at someone for killing or punishing something that they don't think is a human life. Mm -hmm. But if they are subhumanizing the fetus, 
then we can be really upset. Yeah, and and I do think kind of what we're going with this is that there was a conversation early, early on Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the pro-life, pro-choice debate where there was a conversation about dehumanization when Mm -hmm. you were saying things like, well, it's not a baby, it's not a fetus, it's just a sack of cells, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. Um, to now this move now from really dehumanization to subhumanization. And we're Mm -hmm. seeing that. Like one of the quotes that, you know, you, you want to read from this pro-choice writer, Mary Elizabeth Williams, that she wrote in SalonMagazine.com, Salon.com rather. Yeah, Why yeah. Don't you read that Th- this was from an article that was published in January of 2013, and she she wrote this was the last line of her her article. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the name of the article was uh, "So What If Abortion Ends Life," um, and she said, and I quote, "And I would put the life of a mother over the life of a fetus every single time." Even if I still need to acknowledge my conviction that the fetus is indeed a life, a life worth sacrificing. Mm -hmm. And so that's really kind of the summary of what we're talking about here, that this transition has – it's happened. There's no longer a debate over whether or not it's a life. The debate is over whether or not that life is actually worth sacrificing. Right. And really what you – so the kind of the logic of the argument is it's a life. It's worth sacrificing. And so the question really is – well, why is it why is it worth sacrificing? Exactly. And I think what we're seeing, and actually we see this on our Facebook page all the time. I think the most one of the most common arguments yeah. that pro-choice people make on our Facebook page when they're responding to our posts is that the mother's life is more valuable yeah. than the fetus's life, and pro-life people are crazy for not seeing that. Yeah, that is absolutely true. That is the the, the perspective that you're seeing more and more. And this whole notion about the mother's life versus the the fetus's life, and and that whole conversation about you know which one's more valuable, really, it does lead you to a conversation about subhumanization as opposed to dehumanization. To kind of mm-hmm. link back to what we were saying before, yeah. but you know that, that whole question about are we are pro life people crazy for right. having that perspective? And you know one of the things I tell people all the time, I, you know, we have a very consistent narrative about how we talk about life, mm-hmm. you know, from natural, from conception to natural death. We, we have a very consistent perspective. And a lot of what we talk about in terms of life and, and, and thinking about, you know, how do we have compassion for folks and how do we apportion compassion? And as I kind of think about the issue, it really comes down to three words, power, vulnerability, and compassion. Power, vulnerability, and compassion. You know, who has power? You know, mm-hmm. who's the more vulnerable and therefore how do we apportion compassion based on power, vulnerability and compassion? And when you look at the life issue, those things play. But let's give it just a quick example to kind of play. Sure. Out. So yeah. let's say that you're crossing a street and uh, you see uh, next to you there's an 85 year old woman and she has groceries, groceries rather. And then you see a 25 year old man carrying also a bag of groceries. Right. Mm-hmm. And they drop their groceries at exactly the same moment into the street. Mm-hmm. And the question is, who are you going to help? First. Yeah, right. I, I think most people would probably help the 85-year-old woman first. Why is that? Because they like 85-year-old women better than 25-year-old? Right. They, they see that the 85-year-old woman is less likely to be able to help herself. Mm-hmm. Therefore, she's more vulnerable. Exactly. And therefore, she deserves our compassion first. Exactly. So you see there there's this interplay between power, vulnerability, and compassion. Who's the more powerful? Who's the more vulnerable? And then what we do as humans is then we then apportion compassion mm-hmm. based on power and vulnerability, right? Mm-hmm. So when you think about the pro-life perspective in terms of how we think about this the same kind of pairing, I call it compassion pairing. So we do a compassion pairing between the woman and the baby in the womb. Mm-hmm. And we ask the same kind of question. 
who's the more powerful and who's the more vulnerable. It's not that the baby has no power and it's not that the woman has no vulnerability. Mm -hmm. It's a question about who's the more powerful and who's the more vulnerable. And when you do that assessment, you say, between the woman and the baby, who's the more powerful? Well, the woman is. In fact, the whole pro-choice movement is basically declaring what? I am powerful. That's Right. right? right. My body, my choice is mm-hmm. a power statement. Right, right, it's right. It's a power statement. Right. I'm mm-hmm. more powerful. Mm-hmm. I am more powerful. It's my body. I have power over my body, and therefore this is my choice. So it actually is a power statement. So when you compare the woman and the child, who's the more powerful between the woman and the baby in the womb? Well, yeah. obviously the baby in the womb. Yeah. And then and then when you apportion compassion, we try to do that same kind of thing. We'll say, well, where should we have more compassion? Between mm-hmm. the woman or the baby? How do we apportion mm-hmm. compassion mm-hmm. in a very difficult situation at times? And that's the way that we do it. Yeah. So it's a sure. very consistent narrative. And I'll just end with this point. Yeah. That even if you're a pro-choice person and you're standing on the curb and you see an 85-year-old woman and a 25-year-old man dropping their groceries, mm-hmm. I bet you a pro-choice person and a pro-life person mm-hmm. or someone who hasn't even thought about the issue is going to respond exactly the same way because it's wired into humanity. It's what determines humanity. It's what makes us human is how we apportion compassion. Right. right. And in fact, going back to my lion hunting a deer example that I mentioned earlier, um, animals actually do the opposite. Yeah. They are actually more compassionate to the powerful because yeah. a, a lion is actually going to go after the least powerful on purpose. Yes. So he's going to eat the least powerful. Yes. And so, yeah, I mean, this is just a huge distinction between what – like you said, what makes us human? What makes us human? Yeah, lions, they do. They, they, yeah. they do the compassion parents say, you know, baby gazelle, adult gazelle, who's the more powerful? Adult gazelle, who's the more vulnerable? Baby gazelle, who's for lunch? Baby gazelle. Right. So they're actually doing a compassion pairing yeah. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But you can think about it. It's actually exactly the opposite of what, what we do as humans. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, in one of the places where we, we saw this uh, this idea kind of rear its ugly head again, just around this notion that it's a life worth sacrificing, is in a letter, an open letter that was published in Cosmopolitan magazine not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a, a, a letter from a mother to her unborn baby. And it was, you know, she, she referred to her unborn baby as her little thing. Yeah. And so it was a letter to her little thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, it was it's actually rather scary to, to read that letter because yeah. um, it really highlights this notion that there is full and complete realization that this is a life. But again, basically, it's better off being killed. Yeah, <laughs> it's a life worth sacrificing. Yeah. And you know, it's clear you can you can when you read this letter, your heart goes out to this this mm-hmm. young woman. Mm-hmm. Right? I think she, mm-hmm. her name is H or I think it is. Yeah, she, yeah. correct. Yep. Your heart goes out because mm-hmm. you know she feels, you know that she's trapped in the in this dilemma and a lot of mm-hmm. times when you're trapped you don't make the same kinds of decisions that you that you should be making mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of apportioning power and vulnerability and compassion, mm-hmm. that kind of a thing. You know, like if you're in a crisis situation sometimes and you're, you know, this whole notion of stepping back and saying, well, who's more vulnerable? Maybe that person should go first and I should mm-hmm. step back. Mm-hmm. When you feel that you're in a crisis, a lot of times you don't think clearly and you can misapportion power, vulnerability. Uh, and compassion, and, yeah. And, yeah. and one other thing too, which is I think is which is really tied to this, because somebody mm-hmm. could listen to this say, "Listen, Ron, I think that the baby's more powerful than mm-hmm. the woman. Mm-hmm. You know, I, the baby has an ability to change her life and mm-hmm. change the direction of her life, and therefore mm-hmm. the baby is more powerful than the woman." And I respond to that in a couple of ways. The first way I say is, "Well, who's the more powerful? Someone who can change your life, or someone who can take your life?" Right. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the other way that I respond to that, I say, listen, if you're if you're if you see a woman in a bar. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. let's say she's smoking and drinking and you just see her. You mm-hmm. have a problem with that. Well, probably not. Right. Mm-hmm. 
But if she turns towards you and you see that she's pregnant, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. do you have a problem with that now? Mm-hmm. Probably do. Every, and everyone would. And everyone and not, would. Not just pro-life people. And, but yeah. why would you have a problem with that? What you just did was compassion parent. You said, who's the more powerful between the woman and the baby in her womb? The woman's more powerful. The child is more vulnerable. She needs to have more compassion for the child, and she needs not to smoke and drink in order to protect the child. So my view is, how can the baby mm-hmm. be more powerful in the abortion mm-hmm. room, Right, right. But more vulnerable in the bar. It's the same baby. Yeah, it's absolutely. The same, it's the same woman. Yeah. And, 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 you know, kind of linking this back again yeah. to, you know, uh, just the, the mentality of some of the, you know, the evildoers throughout throughout history. Yeah. I mean, if you really think about it, it it's this notion that the, the person doing the sacrifice yeah. is, at, is more powerful than the person being sacrificed. Yes. I mean, you think about, I mean, if you think about human sacrifice, yes. you know, the Aztec Empire or, or whatever it was, you know, the, the kings and emperors and the, the royalty of the Aztec Empire, were, they weren't killing each other. Right. They were finding who they thought was subhuman, right. you know, slaves and tribes that they were taking yes. over. And those, those were the people that they were sacrificing Absolutely. for the, quote, greater good, greater to good. appease the gods, to make the crops flourish, whatever it might have been. Yeah. And it was this notion that we, the sacrificers, are more important and more powerful. Our lives are worth more than those that we are sacrificing. Yes. And therefore, this is a justified behavior. And it's just this kind of perverse mentality that's seeped into kind of the pro-choice argument. Now, we're, of course, not saying that they're, you know, Aztec sacrificers or Nazis or anything like that. We're not – that's not what we're saying. But we're saying the mentality, the kind of the thinking, the philosophy that's behind these movements is eerily similar. Yeah, it is. And I think that's the the principle there. I mean that's what we're talking about is a principle. principle. And that's the reason why when you're a pro-life person and you see these things, you don't just look at the circumstance – you also look at the principle that's being displayed. So if the principle that you use in terms of how you order your life is that you you don't have a compassion-pairing perspective that says who's the more powerful, who's the more vulnerable, and make the right decisions in terms of that from a humanity perspective, that's very dangerous. You know, Hitler would do that, mm-hmm. you know, compassion-pairing. you say, who's the more powerful, my Nazi soldiers, who's the more vulnerable, these Jews, mm-hmm. but who gets sacrificed? Mm-hmm. Right. The Jews. Right. In other words, he was more compassionate towards his soldiers than he was towards the Jews. Mm-hmm. That principle mm-hmm. is what the problem is. And if you mm-hmm. walk around with that kind of principle, you know, principles lead to certain types of actions. Principles always generally precede actions. Mm-hmm. And that's what we try to do in terms of our work and in terms of talking to the public square. So we want you to step back and consider mm-hmm. the principle that's behind the behavior as opposed to just focusing on on the behavior because the principle is the thing that's going to be – that's going to lead it's you down. driving the behavior, yeah. That's driving the behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Or, you know, I want to change gears a little bit here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> maybe hopefully lighten things up a little bit. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you actually did a blog post recently on, on CareNet's Abundant Life blog. So mm-hmm. if anyone's interested in, in doing that, you go to care-net.org and click on Abundant Life and you'll uh, get into the blog. Uh, you actually wrote an article about a Seinfeld episode. I did. The show about nothing. The show about nothing. But uh, amazingly, the show about nothing actually has a lot of things to say about a lot of a lot yeah. of things. A lot of, uh, to say about something. <laughs> yeah, right. It has something to say about something. Yes. Uh, and or I mean, nothing to say about something. Yeah. Uh, now I'm confused. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, we'll, we'll move forward even though we're, we're confused about that. But yeah, you wrote this great article about uh, the, I guess, famous Define the Relationship episode in Seinfeld yeah. where uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Elaine are – Deciding whether or not they should continue to have sex with each other, yeah, um, without obviously having any sort of commitment to each other, yeah. um, and so this you know funny 
conversation sort of flows from that about, you know, figuring out how they're going to talk to each other and what they're going to say before and after and, you know, how they're going to remain friends. They want to remain friends. They don't want to let the, the sexual relationship interfere with that. Um, and it actually brought up this really kind of interesting question about the difference between um, a healthy relationship mm-hmm. and a healthy marriage. Yeah. So why don't, you, why don't you kind of explain what yeah. how that made you think about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting episode because it's sort of like this whole notion of friends with benefits, which is sort of a cultural perspective that we have right now. Mm-hmm. And it made me start to think about what's the difference between friends with benefits and friends with wedding rings, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so what they were trying to do was to try to keep the benefits mm-hmm. that actually are tied to the wedding ring mm-hmm. piece, mm-hmm. right, uh, without actually – that piece. Yeah, I, so, I think you said it was like it's kind of like trying to eat a powdered donut without getting any of the powder on you. It's possible, but very difficult. Very difficult. <laughs> to do. Yes, that's absolutely true. Right, yeah, that creates creates an image there. Yeah. Yeah. So I started to think about that, and when I w- used to work with National Fatherhood Initiative, one of the things that we would talk about all the time is, is fatherhood in the context of marriage, mm-hmm. because that's the best societal glue to connect fathers to their kids, heart to heart, because it's connecting fathers to the mothers of their kids, heart to heart in a covenant relationship, and so often I found. People wanted to talk about fatherhood, but when you t- wanted to talk about marriage, it's like we don't want to talk about marriage. We just want to talk about fatherhood, mm-hmm. as if you can kind of decouple those, right. decouple those things. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and so I'm, I remember being in, in some meetings, having this discussion, and you know what? I'd say you don't want to talk about marriage. No, we just want to, people. We just want to make sure that people have healthy relationships. So then I asked the question: Well, what is a healthy relationship? And often what you would hear was just crickets. Because right. what you'd find was that there wasn't a consistent understanding of what a healthy relationship was, exactly. um, mm-hmm. except for one thing, that there shouldn't be any domestic violence. Mm-hmm. But then when you start asking questions like, well, should he save for her retirement mm-hmm. if they're in, quote, a healthy relationship, mm-hmm. you know, a long-term mm-hmm. healthy relationship with kids involved, whatever that means. You know, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, a couple of the other questions that – and again, this is – when you ask these questions and you think about how people in a healthy marriage would answer them mm-hmm. – and how people in a healthy relationship would answer them, yeah. it really highlights that there is a significant difference yeah. between the two. So, for example, would you delay your education so that your mate could pursue theirs, and would you, ex- would you expect them to do the same for you? Are you and your mate in agreement about how long your relationship should last? Mm-hmm. Simple yeah. questions, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and the answers are – outrageously obvious for married couples. Yes. Like, our marriage should last forever. Of course, we would make sacrifices for the other person's education, et cetera, et cetera. But a healthy relate. I mean, the, the, the answers could be any, yeah. anything. Should I have sex with other people? Right. Right. I mean, in a yeah. marriage, that's pretty mm-hmm. much kind of, we got that pretty squared away. But mm-hmm. in a, quote, healthy relationship, mm-hmm. what's the answer to that? And so what yeah. I find often is that when, when people couple... Mm-hmm. Loosely termed in some form, mm-hmm. there's a set of there's a script that each person has mm-hmm. in their head about what this is all about. Mm-hmm. When it's a marriage, that script is a very public script mm-hmm. um, that you understand, and, and more importantly, one that society understands in general as well. And you hold yourself accountable to it, mm-hmm. and frankly, society holds mm-hmm. you holds you accountable to it. Mm-hmm. But when you're in this kind of amorphous, kind of healthy relationship, cohabiting type of thing that we've created in, mm-hmm. in so many different environments, especially when children are involved, mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, so often that script that you may have in your head and the one that she has in her head or vice mm-hmm. versa mm-hmm. is not shared. So you have a perspective, mm-hmm. but it's not shared and it, mm-hmm. there's not agreement there. And mm-hmm. that's why there can be so much tension and conflict. And that's why mm-hmm. um, kids who grow up in relationship, uh, grow up and have their parents 
cohabiting are mm-hmm. much more likely, mm-hmm. like three to five times more likely to see their parents split up mm-hmm. before within the age, two years, I think. W- yeah, yeah, within two years. So yeah. whereas in marriages, you don't see that. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah. it really is, you know, it's a funny thing with mm-hmm. the Seinfeld perspective yeah, in terms yeah. of kind of kind of them talking through it. But the mm-hmm. reality is a very, very serious thing, mm-hmm. especially given the fact that the decline that we're seeing in marriage, the increase that we're seeing in, in cohabiting relationships, mm-hmm. especially cohabiting relationships with children. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, the, the, the reason that this is so important to talk about is because of its impact on children. Yes. If, it, if children weren't involved, it would probably still be problematic at some level, obviously. Yes. Um, but really at the end of the day, when, when children's lives are being Im- impacted in a negative way and that's not really being acknowledged yes. in, in the, the public dialogue around all this stuff because we really just we're, – we're bad. I mean adults are – we just kind of tend to focus on ourselves and how yeah. this is going to impact us and what it means for – our ability to self-actualize and get pleasure out of life and do all these other things, um, and we forget about the impact that it's going to have on children. And we just know from decades and decades of research now, yes. unequivocally, that children suffer negative consequences when these relationships are not marriage relationships and when they're not healthy marriages. Absolutely, absolutely. So, and it leads to father absence too. Oh, a- absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I, in fact, it's funny because I was just having a conversation with with a, someone coming in to work today, uh, mm-hmm. a young man that I've known over the years. Mm-hmm. He called me. He's in a crisis. He's got a woman. He's in a relationship with it. They're living together. They have two children. They've never married. Mm-hmm. And it's falling apart. And it's mm-hmm. fraying. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's basically at, at a crisis mm-hmm. point because, you know, he mm-hmm. never made that kind of commitment to her and right. she never made that kind of commitment to him. And now all these issues that we're talking about in terms of the define the relationship questions. Mm-hmm. She defined them one way, he defined them another way, and now they're in a point of conflict and they have two children together, one uh, one very, very young and, and mm-hmm. one, you know, older, and mm-hmm. now they're in a, in a crisis mode. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and I think uh, skeptics would say, well, marriages break up too mm-hmm. and marriages aren't perfect. But, you know, for all the problems that marriages yeah. have, and of course they do, Cohabiting relationships, I mean, just multiply that by, you know, 10, uh, rhetorically speaking. I mean, marriages do have problems, but guess what? Cohabiting relationships have all those same problems plus a plethora of other problems um, that are just magnified. Um, So it's kind of this ironic thing that if you have a problem with marriage, then you should have even more of a problem with cohabitation. Yeah, (laughs) kind of going back to the analogy before, it's like trying to eat a powdered donut without getting any other powder Mm. on you. You want all the benefits of marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But you don't want the consequences, the commitment. And, and, and as a result, you don't get the benefits because whenever there are benefits, there's also consequence and commitment, just like if you're eating a powdered donut. Yeah. So it's kind of the world that we live in. And it it's is. unfortunate. And part of what we try to do is put some truth out there. That is right. And, yeah. and, and speaking of speaking of powdered donuts and truth, this yes. is I think this is a good time for us to wrap things up for episode two here. And yes. Hopefully go try to find some donuts over in the kitchen. Yeah, that's um, the truth. <laughs> and, and ain't that the truth. So, so, and we will probably get powder on our faces. Absolutely. So no way to avoid it. I count on it. Thanks for listening to this month's CareCast. For more pro-abundant life resources and information, visit us on the web at care-net.org, find us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at InspireLifeNow. And if you have any ideas about what we should cover in this podcast, email us at carecast at care-net.org. We will uh, see you next time here on CareCast. All right. Well, thank you. And until next time, may God bless you daily as you serve him faithfully in all you do.